Welcome, friends, to the September Extra AF. I'm Keena. And I'm Ashley. And we're going to deliver you some This Month in History, What Happened This Month in History, and then read your stories. Woohoo! The first half's probably going to be really dark. 2020 is a son of a bitch. Fuck 2020. Fuck 2020. Yeah, Murray, you tell 2020. You tell it to fuck off too, bud. They're both like, we can't touch humans anymore because of freaking social distancing and it is bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. We've been going on walks and they'll both be like, oh, people are going to touch me. People are going to touch me. And we're like, we can't go over there, buddy, because nobody has masks on. So they're really upset ruining lives it's been tough on everybody apparently it's a rough rough time so how have you been besides 2020 being a son of a bitch for the most part i'm really really good just going through school partying whatever working my (laughs) booty off (laughs) but yeah i'm good how are you a good a good i've lost all track of time so when people ask me that i'm like i don't even know what day it is you know, time is a construct. It is. It's a construct. And I've been very crafty lately. And uh, that's pretty much. I've been very artistic. That's how I'm getting through these days. Very nice. Right? I made a lot of koozies today. <laughs> that was my contribution to life today. Okay. Make a lot of booze koozies. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I've been crocheting a hat and I realized halfway through that the color combination I picked makes it look like a boob. <laughs> it that has a better <laughs> top and a light gray body. I bet it will sell even faster now that it looks like a boob. Oh, I'm definitely going to man- manufacture some infant sized boob hats too. <laughs> Uh, oh that just oh that brought me a lot of joy yeah i've never learned how to do anything like that so or crochet or knit none of that stuff i can sew very badly not good at it but i can put a button on (laughs) somehow i taught myself to crochet i still don't know how but Uh. i did (laughs) so this one time when i I was dating zeke and i was trying to impress him he was like do you know how to sew and i was like of course i do i don't and then he's like hey uh could you hem these pant legs for me i gotta have them by tomorrow blah 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 and it's like sure i can figure that out because in my head i'm like i'm gonna call my mom she'll tell me how to do it it'll be fine he didn't tell me it was his dress blues so he dropped it off and i'm like oh shit this is bad because if i fuck up then he's fucked in this just military and it was very scary so i was up to like three in the morning with my mom like facetiming me be like you know calm down <laughs> <laughs> like, like trying to do like an underhand something stitch and she's like you do it like this you can't see the stitch and i'm like it doesn't look good uh, i think we got be like oh this will work and i was like does it look bad he's like doesn't look great but it'll work <laughs> such a trooper that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> Although now he's like, can you put my button back on? But can you like bring it out a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the quarantine waits, no joke. Oh my God. Let's, we don't speak of it in this household. Oh, man. So. Do we want to just rip the band-aid off of what's happened this time? I guess I keep like bringing things up because I don't want to. But yeah, I guess I'll rip it off. So everyone, 
I'm sure you know by now, but something that's going to become history or be in our history books, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, champion of gender equality, dies at 87. And that hurts. Yeah. You're the one that told me I was recording part two of Presidents when it happened. And then I hit like in record and I looked at my phone I saw what you said and I was like oh my god what happened and just oh it's I didn't I didn't expect it which it's sad for an 87 year old you should expect that yes but I mean this just it was such a gut gut punch like we were watching a movie and I saw the news and I just started screaming no fuck 2020 and I was so angry and just started crying And um, the article that I'm going to read is from NPR and it's kind of long, but it's worth reading the whole thing because it's so detailed and will give you a lot of information because Ginsburg was such an amazing person. So, oh my God, like I can't even put into words how much I looked up to her. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is, this is big. This is huge. So. Yeah. Justice Ginsburg, the demure firebrand who in her 80s became a legal, cultural, and feminist icon, died Friday. The Supreme Court announced her death, saying the cause was complications from metastatic cancer of the pancreas. The court, in a statement, said Ginsburg died at her home in Washington, D.C., surrounded by family. She was 87. Our nation has lost a justice of historic stature, Chief Justice John Roberts said. We at the Supreme Court have lost a cherished colleague today. Today we mourn, but with confidence, the future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice, architect of the legal fight for women's rights in the 1970s. Ginsburg subsequently served 27 years on the nation's highest court, becoming its most prominent member. Her death will inevitably set in motion what promises to be a nasty and tumultuous political battle over who will succeed her, and it thrusts the Supreme Court vacancy into the spotlight of the presidential campaign. Just days before her death, as her strength waned, Ginsburg dictated this statement to her granddaughter, Clara Spira. My my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. She knew what was to come. Ginsburg's death will have profound consequences for the court and the country. Inside the court, not only is the leader of the liberal wing gone, but with the court about to open a new term, the chief justice no longer holds the controlling vote in closely contested cases. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a historic figure. She changed the way the world is for American women. For more than a decade, until her first judicial appointment in 1980, she led the fight in the courts for gender equality. When she began her legal crusade, women were treated by law differently from men. Hundreds of state and federal laws restricted what women could do, barring them from jobs, rights, and even from jury service. By the time she donned judicial robes, however, Ginsburg had worked a revolution. That was never more evident than in 1996 when, as a relatively new Supreme Court justice, Ginsburg wrote the court's seven-to-one opinion, declaring that the Virginia Military Institute could no longer remain an all-male institution. True, Ginsburg said, most women, indeed most men, would not want to meet the rigorous demands of VMI. 
but the state, she said, could not exclude women who would meet those demands. Reliance on overbroad generalizations, estimates about the way most men or most women are, will not suffice to deny opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description, Ginsburg wrote. She was an unlikely pioneer, a diminutive and shy woman whose soft voice and large glasses hid an intellect and attitude that, as one colleague put it, was tough as nails. By the time she was in her 80s, she had become something of a rock star to women of all ages. She was the subject of a hit documentary, a biopic, an operetta, merchandise galore featuring her notorious RBG moniker, a Times magazine cover, and regular Saturday Night Night Live sketches. 2016, Ginsburg got herself into trouble and later publicly apologized for disparaging remarks she made about then-presidential candidate Trump. But for the most part, Ginsburg enjoyed her fame and maintained a sense of humor about herself. Asked about the fact that she had apparently fallen asleep during the 2015 State of the Union address, Ginsburg did not take the fifth, admitting that although she had vowed not to drink at dinner with the other justices before the speech, the wine had just been too good to resist. The result, she said, was that she was perhaps not an entirely sober judge and kept nodding off. (laughs) Which... Same, honestly, I would (laughs) defer her. Her first big case was a challenge to a law that barred a Colorado man named Charles Moritz from taking a tax deduction for the care of his 89-year-old mother. The IRS said the deduction by statute could only be claimed by women or widowed or divorced men, but Moritz had never married. The tax court concluded that the Internal Revenue Code was immune to constitutional challenge, a notion that tax lawyer Marty Ginsburg viewed as preposterous. The two Ginsburgs took on the case, he from the tax perspective, she from the constitutional one. According to Marty Ginsburg, for his wife, this was the mother brief. She had to think through all the issues and how to fix the inequity. The solution was to ask the court not to invalidate the statute, but to apply it equally to both sexes. She won in the lower courts. Amazingly, he called in a 1993 NPR interview The government petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court stating that the decision cast a cloud of unconstitutionality over literally hundreds of federal statutes, and it attached a list of those statutes, which it compiled with Defense Department computers. Those laws, Marty Ginsburg added, were the statutes that my wife then litigated to overturn over the next decade. In 1971, she would write her first Supreme Court brief in the case of Reed versus Reed. Ruth Bader Ginsburg represented Sally Reed, who thought she should be the executor of her son's estate instead of her ex-husband. The constitutional issue was whether a state could automatically prefer men over women as executors of state of estates. The answer from all, the all-male Supreme Court is no. It was the first time the court had struck down a state law because it discriminated based on gender, and that was just the beginning. By then, Ginsburg was earning quite a reputation. She would become the first female tenured professor at Columbia Law School. She was would found the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. As the chief architect of the battle for women's legal rights, Ginsburg devised a strategy that was characteristically cautious, precise, and single-mindedly aimed at one goal, winning. 
Knowing that she had to persuade male, establishment-oriented judges, she often picked male plaintiffs, and she liked Social Security cases because they illustrated how discrimination against women can harm men. For example, in Weinberger versus Weisenfeld, she represented a man whose wife, the principal breadwinner, died in childbirth. The husband sought survivor's benefits to care for his child, but under the then-existing Social Security law, only widows, not widowers, were entitled to such benefits. This absolute exclusion, based on gender per se, operates to the disadvantages of the female workers, their surviving spouses, and their children, Ginsburg told the justices at oral argument. The Supreme Court will ultimately agree, as it did in five of the six cases she argued. Over the years, Ginsburg would file dozens of briefs seeking to persuade the courts that the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection applies not just to racial and ethnic minorities, but to women as well. In an interview with NPR, she explained the legal theory that she eventually sold to the Supreme Court. The words of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, nor shall any state deny to any person the equal protection of the laws, Well, that word, any person, covers women as well as men. And the Supreme Court woke up to that reality in 1971, Ginsburg said. During these pioneering years, Ginsburg would often work through the night as she had during law school. But by this time, she had two children, and she later liked to tell a story about the lesson she learned when her son in grade school seemed to have a proclivity for getting into trouble. The scrapes were hardly major, and Ginsburg grew exasperated by demands from school administrators that she come in to discuss her son's alleged misbehavior. Finally, there came a day when she had had enough. I had stayed up all night the night before, and I said to the principal, this child has two parents. Please alternate calls. After that, she found the calls were few and far between. It seemed, she said, that most infractions were not worth calling a busy husband about. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter named Ginsburg to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Over the next 13 years, she would amass a record, something of a centrist liberal, and in 1993, President Bill Clinton nominated her to Supreme Court, the second woman appointed to the position. She was not the first on his list. For months, Clinton flirted with other potential nominees, and some women's rights activists withheld their active support because they were worried about Ginsburg's views on abortion. She had been publicly critical of the legal reasoning in Roe v. Wade. But in the background, Marty Ginsburg was lobbying hard for his wife. And finally, Ruth Ginsburg was invited for a meeting with the president. As one White House official put it afterward, Clinton fell for her hook, line, and sinker. So did the Senate. She was confirmed by a 96-3 vote. Once on the court, Ginsburg was an example of a woman who defied stereotypes. Though she looked tiny and frail, she rode horses well into her 70s and even went parasailing. At home, it was her husband who was the chef, indeed a master chef, while the justice cheerfully acknowledged she was an awful cook. Though a liberal, she and the court's conservative icon, Anton Scalia, who died in 2016, were the closest of friends. Indeed, an opera called Scalia Ginsburg is based on their legal disagreements and their affection for each other. (laughs) We have to see that. Yes. (laughs) Over the years, as Ginsburg's place on the court grew in seniority, so did her role. 
In 2006, as the court veered right after the retirement of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Ginsburg dissented more often and more assertively, her most passionate dissents coming in women's rights cases. Dissenting in Ledbetter v. Goodyear in 2007, she called on Congress to pass legislation that would override a court decision that drastically limited back pay available for victims of employment discrimination. The resulting legislation was the first bill passed in 2009 after Obama took office. In 2014, she dissented fiercely in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, a decision that allowed some for-profit companies to refuse on religious grounds to comply with a federal mandate to cover birth control and health care plans. Such an exemption, exemption, she said, would deny legions of women who do not hold their employer's beliefs ex- access to contraceptive coverage. Where, she asked, is the stopping point. Suppose it offends an employer's religious belief to pay the minimum wage or to accord women equal pay. And in 2013, when the court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, contending that times had changed and the law was no longer needed, Ginsburg dissented. She said that throwing out the provision when it was worked and is continuing to work is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you were not getting wet. She viewed her dissents as a chance to persuade a future court. Some of my favorite opinions are dissenting opinions, Ginsburg told NPR. I will not live to see what becomes of them, but I remain hopeful. And yet, Ginsburg still managed some unexpected victories by winning over one or two of the conservative justices in important cases. In 2015, for example, she authored the court's decision on upholding independent redistricting commissions established by voter referenda as a way of removing some of the partisanship in drawing legislative district lines. Ginsburg always kept a back-breaking schedule of public appearances both at home and abroad, even after five bouts with cancer, colon cancer in 1999, pancreatic cancer 10 years later, lung cancer in 2018, and then pancreatic cancer again in 2019, and liver lesions in 2020. During that time, she endured chemotherapy, radiation, and in the last years of her life, terrible pain from shingles that never went away completely. All who knew her admired her grit. In 2009, three weeks after major cancer surgery, she surprised everyone when she showed up for the State of the Union address. Shortly after that, she was back on the bench. It was her husband, Marty, who told her she could do it, even when she thought she could not, she told NPR. A year later, her psychological toughness was on full display when her beloved husband of 56 years was mortally ill. As she packed up his things at the hospital before taking him home to die, she found a note he had written to her. My dearest Ruth, it began, you are the only person I have ever loved, setting aside children and family. I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell. The time has come for me to take leave of life because the loss of quality simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a jot less. Shortly after that, Marty Ginsburg died at home. The next day, his wife, the justice, was on the bench reading an important opinion she had authored for the court. She was there, she said, because Marty would have wanted it. Years later, she would read the letter aloud in an NPR interview and at the end choke down the tears. In the years after Marty's death, she would persevere without him, maintaining a jam-packed schedule when she was not on the bench or working on opinions. 
Some liberals criticized her for not retiring while Obama was president, but she was at the top of her game, enjoyed her work enormously, and feared that Republicans might not confirm a successor. She was an avid consumer of opera, literature, and modern art. But in the end, it was her work, she said, that sustained her. I do think that I was born under a very bright star, she said in an NPR interview. Because if you think about my life, I get out of law school. I have top grades. No law firm in the city of New York will hire me. I end up teaching. It gave me time to devote to the movement for evening out the rights of women and men. And it was that legal crusade for women's rights that ultimately led to her appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. To the end of her tenure, she remained a special kind of feminist, both decorous and dogged. And I'm still really sad, and may her memory be a blessing. Yes. I, I've i learned a lot about Judaism since she passed because my sister just converted and it takes a year to convert so she had to learn a whole lot so i was asking her questions and because i was seeing people saying rest in peace and uh yeah you say may your memory be a blessing or a revolution and the moment she died is the most like special time to die in the jewish religion it was at sunset at the end of their year so Although yeah, I told my sister congratulations because they're technically out of 2020. <laughs> like the year's yeah, over for them. Lucky. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it, they believe that God keeps the most special and most righteous for that moment and then takes them. That makes yeah. it even sadder. I know. And uh, I also found out that in Judaism that they have no consensus on the afterlife, that sure. they think that you're you spend your life doing the best you can to be a good person and do good things and give back in life. And you don't worry about what happens after. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen some backlash and I've been trying to read as much as I can. Cause I know a lot of people of color have been saying that she was a, you know, a middle-class white savior. Like, I don't want to publish this episode and not like address <laughs> that, but I don't yeah. know how to do it. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of backlash. I saw a backlash about how um, they, the whole notorious RBG thing mm-hmm. and how it's kind of stealing from black culture because of the notorious BIG. Mm-hmm. But I didn't read a lot of it because I was in the middle of something and just forgot to go back to it. Yeah, um, I did read like her response is that, you know, the, the thing they have in common is they're both from Brooklyn. Yeah. And- you know, she said several times, like, she never asked to be an icon like, or yeah. to be this savior. And the whole, like, uh, saint imagery and stuff doesn't really yeah. work well because she was Jewish. I read a really great – New York Times did a really good article about the backlash. And they said that a lot of the people that are upset are – luckily, you know, we're young enough that we don't remember a time where we couldn't have a bank account or – yeah. We don't remember a time where we had to have a man to get a lease or buy a car or, you know, have medical procedures done. So they're like, she fought for all women. But I think a lot of people don't see that because we don't, we've never had to live that. Yeah. And, that then, and then she, like her record on incarcerations is not great, mm-hmm. but none of the justices are. Um, a lot of them have not fought too hard on the dis- discrepancies, but she did fight for black men being disproportionately 
accused of rape. Yeah. Um, that was one of her cases she's done. And she did work um, on cases as a lawyer, not a justice about the forced sterilization of indigenous peoples. Um, so I think that she just wasn't as vocal about race issues, but I don't think that doesn't mean that she didn't care, but that's not my place to say, cause I'm not her and I can't get in her head, but I just, there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, <laughs> I've read lots of books on her. Yeah. So I think that's why I was kind of shocked. I've read so many books about her over the years. Cause when I worked at the library, like, you know, the notorious RBG came out. And once I read that, I was hooked and I read all the books, but they didn't really talk about the race issues. So I'm still learning. And as obviously a white woman, I can't speak for anybody. And I'm obviously kind of blinded by my privilege. So I wouldn't want to say that I'm sad and she was the best. And then people be saddened because I don't see their point. I totally see it. I'm just still trying to learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a learning experience every day and we're working on it. Oh, yes. Thousand percent. So I'm definitely trying to read more. Also thinking about now that I've learned some stuff about Judaism from my sister, just like how hard it must have been for her to be Jewish and a woman and working with kids. She worked in a time where you weren't allowed to get pregnant. You'd lose your job and you couldn't go to school because it'd be like, you should be a mom, quit, Mm -hmm. give your spot to somebody else. And I just, the the amount of fight she had to do just for us to exist yeah, Dion's right. She fought the battle she was able to. Mm-hmm. Oh, politics are so goddamn depressing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so man. bring us back. Whew. So September in history is dark. You know, we have everything from like Napoleon Wars, Hitler fucked some shit up. And then there's uh, obviously 9-11, which is just every year just crushes my spirit so i was trying to find something in history that wasn't super sad because i think we've had enough sadness for this month yes please so i found the weirdest shit that happened in september throughout history nice (laughs) number one poker face poker face says poor edward ii not only did he face constant opposition in his 20-year rule but he was deposed in 1326 when england was invaded by his wife and her lover burn (laughs) that's unfortunate following a year's imprisonment edward was executed in september of 1327 and rumors soon spread that he met his gruesome end with a red hot poker up his bum Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> Put me down for not that. Uh, I'm going to go. That's, for that's real. No for me. Oh, Jesus. Man. I want to make some kind of weird popsicle joke, but I just can't do it. I, <laughs> my brain isn't working that way right now. Second one. The unveiling of the David statue by the great Renaissance artist Michelangelo on September 8th, 1504. It was a long time coming. A marble of the biblical hero had been commissioned to a different sculptor 40 years before then, but what? never got beyond the early chiseling. David went neglected for decades until a 20-something Michelangelo asked for the contract. Nearly three years later, David was placed at the entrance of the Palazzo Vecchio. Is that how you say it? Vecchio, I think. In Florence, purposely positioned so the stern gaze is fixed towards the neighboring state of Rome as a warning. Okay. I found out like a week ago that that statue is really big. Oh, yeah. He's enormous. 
yeah, I thought he was man-sized. <laughs> yeah, if you ever see, like, close-ups, too, like, you can see individual veins. Like, it's insane. It's so oh. incredibly detailed. It's a little disproportion to you because it brings attention to his hand. His hand's, like, enormous, too. Yeah. Okay. Art history minor. <laughs> and then I think... I'm pretty sure one of the popes put like a fig leaf over his wiener for a while. Okay, so, you know, popes. I don't know. They did they that didn't to the knock it right off. <laughs> Stick it in a box in the Vatican. I'm sure they probably tried. Michelangelo was kind of a dick, though. It'd be like, you touch it, take your hand off. No, nope. take your dick off. <laughs> uh, well, they put fig leaves on the majority of the Sistine Chapel dicks. So terrible. I think they've left like one or two after the reconstruction, just so people can see. Acceptable dicks. I mean, Garden of Eden, everybody was naked. Like, God made us that way. Why are you being like that, folks? They were born with leaves. Born this way. The Lady Gaga themed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in episode Jesus Four, I talked about this one, the invasion of the Ottoman army that led to the creation of the croissant was in (sighs) September of 1683. Okay. Yes, I love croissants. I want one now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gimme, gimme, gimme. Oh, no, this says tragedy on the tracks. That's not funny. If it says tragedy. Boasting hundreds of guests and a procession of train carriages, the opening of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was meant to be a grand event on the 15th of September, 1830. Yet it became a lamentable accident when William Huckinson for Liverpool ended up on the tracks with Stevenson's rocket steaming towards him. Huckinson's legs were crushed. Ah! And despite George Stevenson's himself driving the politician to a nearby town for care, he succumbed hours later. He didn't make it. I didn't know. Jesus. He didn't make it. How did, how, he that, up, how did he end up in front of the train if he was on the train? I didn't pass math. I know. I'm still like, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> what? This is the, the picture. It shows like he fell out and then boom. Oh. So it was like a side-by-side track, I'm assuming. That's unfortunate. Because at first I was like, I don't think these things move that fast. The Because the other dude was in a rocket steamer thing. Oh. I was like, well, I guess they didn't really have brakes like they do now. Even now they can't stop because it's going too fast and it's too big. Velocity or some shit. Is that this the word? <laughs> they probably ran over like his knees so it was easily oh. like removed. Yeah. And he was the first to die in a rail accident. That's the first you do not want. No. Nope. Hard pass. All right. Next one. Tipsy taxi. (laughs) Sorry, dead guy. Moving on. Before 1 a.m. on September 10th, 1897, London taxi driver George Smith was stopped by a policeman when his electric cab was seen swerving across the road at a reckless eight miles per hour. <laughs> you monster <laughs> maniac. After questioning, he was fined 20 shillings and so became the first person to be charged with driving while drunk. 
Motor car drivers ought to be very careful, he was warned. The police have a very happy knack of stopping a runaway horse, but to stop a motor is a very different thing. Real talk. Maybe we can go back to horse-drawn carriages. Maybe. I don't know. That seems like I don't have the patience for that. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine going back home in a horse. Oh, God, no. I mean, it takes me fucking forever to get out of Texas. I can't even imagine. Real talk. Before the dystopian futures is number six. Oh, no. Fifteen years before publishing his dystopian magnum opus, Brave New World, former student Aldous Huxley was hired as Elton College's new French tutor. In a bizarre coincidence, or was it serendipity, he spent that year teaching Eric Blair, who would achieve great fame with another bleak futuristic novel, 1984, under the name George Orwell. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Next one. 50 years of Thunderbirds. With their rockets, submarines, and space stations, the Tracy family has been saving the world in thrilling generations for 50 years. From the first time the immortal words Thunderbirds are go were broadcast on September 30th, 1965. The sci-fi series created by British TV producers Jerry and Sylvia Anderson used an innovative puppetry technique known as Super Marionation to bring the missions of Jeff Tracy's International Rescue to life across 32 episodes and two feature films. Well, that's awesome. I have never seen that. (laughs) I didn't know it was dolls. (laughs) I didn't either. (laughs) There's a picture. (laughs) Okay, those look like dolls. Yeah, I did not know. Wow. So there we have it. Some weird shit. Weird (laughs) shit in history. (laughs) Love it. Well, let's hope these listener stories are not sad. (laughs) Okay, let's see which one I want to pick. Okay, I'm going to pick this short one since I talked for so long. (laughs) All right, this one is from Baxter. It says back in eight in. Wow, that's. (laughs) take two (laughs) my brain just went like fucking numb just gotta reboot it (laughs) yes i just had to completely turn it off and back on again all right back in 1982 when my great-grandmother passed away nobody at my grandmother's wanted to move into her room so i did being the skeptic that i am one night i am lying on one side of the bed facing the bedroom door and the edge my back towards the empty side. And as I'm trying to fall asleep, I felt the mattress sink behind me as if someone is ha- has laid down. No, 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 no. Naturally, my heart skipped a beat or two turned and I turned around and no one was there. I pulled up my bravado attitude and said to the empty room, <laughs> get the fuck out. This is my room now. Right on girl. What? What a badass. <laughs> And that was the end of that. The next morning, my mom tells me she dreamed about my great-grandma and that my great-grandma said, that's Becky's room now. (laughs) Holy shit. Yes, girl. (laughs) If it was my meemaw, she'd be like, language, Kina. Right. (laughs) My grandma would be like, I know you didn't talk to me like that. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I have to add the side note, the house that I used to live in is uh, was haunted and I kept waking up smelling cigarette smoke. So one day I sat up and I said, there is no smoking in my house. And it went away and I never smelled it again. That's amazing. So like if you just get a little ballsy <laughs> or you vagina up and just like say, hey, cut the shit, they'll listen. Uh, uh, so I'm uh, obsessed with TikTok. I, I think everybody knows that by now. But yeah, there's this one dude that keeps showing up on my For You page and he has like a shadow man. And he finally was like, for fuck's sakes, get out and stop slamming my shit. <laughs> Just, <laughs> he's like, people told me to be, you know, stern about it. I thought, it was yeah, really good for him. You know, you just got to stand your ground, you know, just got to tell that ghost what's what. All right, this is from Leanne, who is a Patreon member. Okay, says, just going to get right into it. All righty. Two of the four cats we had when we started dating, Christian and Anna. Shut the front door. They named after Fifty Shades of Grey characters. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. (laughs) Maybe. Christian and Anna grew up together and were very close. Yes, like Fifty Shades. And yes, Ah. they were both gray. (laughs) 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 Oh, (laughs) Since I was not around when they were named. Likely Mm -hmm. story. (laughs) Christian loved to sleep right at my feet on the bed. And there was plenty of room because I'm pretty short and the boyfriend is not. Almost every night, I would feel him jump up, walk around in a circle, lie down, and sleep there pretty much the whole night. I used to call him our cat dog because he acted more like a dog than a cat most times. In August 2018, out of nowhere, he got sick, and sadly, we lost him within a matter of days. Christian! Oh, no! About seven months later, oh, oh no! Anna, no! Anna got sick as well, something completely different from what Christian had. One day I brought her to the vet and they gave me meds for her and let me bring her home, telling me to bring her back if she didn't improve. That night we had to carry Anna into the bedroom because she just didn't want to move and we wanted her to be close to us. Okay, get it together, Kina. She automatically crawled into the space under our bed where she loved to sleep and felt most comfortable. After we turned off the light and were lying there for a bit, I felt a cat jump up onto the end of our bed by my feet walked around in a circle, and lied down. I was so happy that she was up and moving around, so I turned the flashlight on my phone to pet her, and when I looked down at the edge of the bed, there was no cat. Because it was her spirit, because she died. (laughs) Oh no, why am I laughing? The next sentence is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) The next sentence is, unfortunately, we lost Anna the next day. But I'm absolutely convinced that the feeling I had was Christian trying to keep us all company and let us know that everything was going to be okay and that he was going to take good care of her. Oh, I like that option better. Why does Leanne always send in stories that make us cry? Yeah, Leanne. We haven't forgotten that first one. (laughs) Never forget. I think of it every time we record listener stories. Ugh. I'm sure he's still around when little things happen that make no sense. The other day, something got pushed off our mini fridge right behind me. And of course, I said, who was that? We have four cats again, so it could have been one of them. 
but there's no cat there. He also used to rub against our legs anytime we use the toilet. And when I get up to pee in the dark, like I do 5,000 times a night, same girl, same. I'll yeah. feel something rub against my legs. When I reach down to pet a cat, there's no cat there. <laughs> Just this morning, I was alone in the apartment sleeping and the drawer in the nightstand was slammed shut. I looked over. There was no cat. None of this stuff happened before we lost him. So I'm convinced it's Christian. I miss him every day, but I know that wherever they are, they're together. And Christian is being the best big brother. He always was to Anna. I attach pictures of them. Anna's the fluffy one. And our ghost cat, Christian, is the tuxedo. I'll show you in a second. And I'm sure there are more things he's done, but I can't think of them right now. It's been a long year. Fuck 2020. Love you guys. Leanne. Love you, Leanne. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck 2020. Okay. Show me the cats. Show me the cats. Show me the baby. Oh, the baby. Okay. That's that's Anna. Sweet baby muffin. I love them. We'll post pictures on our social media. More reason to join Patreon. Shameless plug. He's looking at us like, yeah, I haunt you. Yes. (laughs) Touch my belly. This is from Christina. Hi, Christina. Hi, Christina. My story is about my former job. I worked for a couple years at a big department store located in a mall. I was a merchandiser and my job was to unload trucks and take the clothes to sales floor to display on the racks. At the end of the day, part of the job included making sure that there were no clothes on the floor and the racks straightened. One day we came in and noticed that there were clothes and toys on the floor in the children's department. We had security check the tapes and what we saw gave us goosebumps. Oh, this is going to be good. (laughs) In the corner of the children's department, there was a rack of clothes and a wall of clothes that the camera focused on. Looking at the rack, you could see what appeared to be a little kid brushing its hand across the clothes. I don't like that. Oh, no. Ghost kids are so creepy. Ghost kids and ghost kid hands. Like, it was playing in the rack like little kids do. Then you see someone, maybe an adult, pick up a piece of clothing off the rack and then see it drop to the floor. This happened twice. Then they move to the wall display and again pick up some clothing and drop it. There were also some stuffed animals scattered on the floor. It creeped us out. Now, from what I had heard is that back in the day, there used to be an old farm located on this property. Don't know if these ghosts belong to the family members or not, but it's just spooky. Also, a side note, in that same corner of the store, there is a storage room that has a water tank and well. I know from watching many ghost shows that water is a great source of energy for spirits. Christina. Wow. Oh. And she gone. She exited the chat. <laughs> Technology is fun, guys. Age back. My bad. I clicked the exit button and not the tab button. Jesus Lord. <laughs> <sighs> oh, it's okay. But yeah, that was terrifying. That was. Good Lord. It says, this is from Alex. It says, okay, this will be long. Ha ha. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> our kind of girl never apologize all right so my former boss lived in the most haunted house i've lived, literally ever heard of and somehow doesn't believe in ghosts <laughs> isn't that what happens all, all the skeptics get all the ghost shit and then people like me that want to want to see something i never do it's bullshit <laughs> 
So my former boss lived in this really old home in northern Kentucky with a main floor and upstairs and a basement accessible by the stairs that were basically a ladder. Very steep and small. I would bust my ass. Yeah. 100%. Like fly up in the air and break my neck. (laughs) My big ass feet can't handle those tiny old house stairs. The upstairs had a hallway with bedrooms on either side. And then at the end of the hallway, there was a stained glass window with an old desk underneath. That's some like spooky haunted house shit right there. I love stained glass. Want some? (laughs) When they moved in, they ripped up the carpet in one of the old or one of the upstairs bedrooms that was going to be their son's bedroom. When he was two to three ish at the time, they found a folder underneath the carpet with newspaper clippings inside about the woman who used to live in their house. Her kids had all died of natural causes, very young, varies in all caps, and she completed suicide after her last child died. Oh, that's really sad. Man, these are downers. Okay, sorry. They moved into the house, and one night they heard their son talking on the baby monitor. Oh, I hate that, too. Baby monitors are creepy. Nope. Can't have kids. Can't have baby monitor. Nope. Throw throw the whole kid out. Yep. (laughs) They go into his room to check on him, and he's gone. What? They search the whole house from top to bottom and find him sitting in the basement. Remember those ladder stairs? Yes, I do remember those stairs, Alex. Holy shit. And then he's talking to the air. They asked him, how'd you get down here? And he points up at the air and says, oh, she brought me here. <gasps> nope. No. And my dog just barked at the worst time and said, <laughs> shit out of me. <laughs> no. That's horrible. Uh, yeah, that's horrifying. After that, they would constantly wake up in the middle of the night to see a woman walking past their bedroom and disappearing at the end of the hallway. Wait, and they still don't believe in ghosts? What the fuck? What What do you think they're seeing? (laughs) They they had another son, and they had put the two sons' pictures on the desk at the end of the hallway under the window, with the older son's picture on the left and the younger son's picture on the right. They started noticing that the pictures would switch places randomly. Then one day, my boss's wife heard something in the hallway and walked out to see that the two picture frames perfectly lift up, lifted up into the air, switched places, and back down. What the fuck? But they don't believe in ghosts. But ghosts aren't real. <laughs> you okay? Stuff proceeded to get stranger. They woke up several times to a woman standing at the foot of their bed. No. Staring at them. Nuh-uh. And as soon as they woke up and saw her, she'd leave. They reached out to a friend of theirs who dealt with paranormal, and she said that she believed the window was a portal. If they removed it, everything would stop. So they did, and everything did stop for several years. Huh. Huh. Well, I guess maybe I don't want a stink glass window. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I still <laughs> A few years later, they thought nothing of it and put a small table underneath the window. Their sons were teenagers at the time, and one of them had turned the basement into his bedroom. He woke up one day from a nap, and his dad's knife, a war knife kept in a locked box, was struck through his shirt sleeve and into the pillow beneath his head. He walked upstairs and says, guys, this isn't funny, and no one had any idea what he was talking about. The thought is, is that when they put the table back, that reopened the portal to less friendly beings. Yikes. In 
Anyway, the sons have since moved out and the woman has moved on. They think she viewed raising his kids or those kids as her purpose and moved on peacefully. Most recently, my former boss and his wife woke up to the sounds of footsteps running up their stairs and giggling. They both watched as a little boy ran into their bedroom, tried to jump on the bed, missed, hit the the bed and they felt him hit it and then disappeared. The craziest part is my former boss is uber religious and doesn't believe in ghosts. So he's in denial by everything he witnessed. And then it just goes, ah, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Yikes. How can you experience all of that and still be like, nah, <laughs> just the wind. <laughs> there's, there's a ghost lady at the foot of our bed, but that, that's not real. Yeah, no, that's horrifying. Baby just floated down to the basement. Everything's fine. (laughs) No, yeah, no. Mm -mm. Nope. No. No. And and then a knife? That that doesn't seem like a mother taking care of children. That sounds like somebody's trying to murder you. For real. Yeah, no, that's not not okay. No. No. Nope. All right. So are we ready for this last one? Yes. Last one for you. For me. That's what I mean. (laughs) All right. So I decided to go with Tiffany and she gave just a little bitty blurb and then she gave a news article. So I'm going to read all the news article and the little blurb. Okay. Or the little blurb first and the news article. So the little blurb says, we live in the same subdivision. My grandma lives a block over and remembers. My grandparents were the same age as the Brickas and my mom would have gone to school with Debbie. The book is amazing and the house still creeps me out every day, mainly because mine is the same design. And the news article comes from WLWT5 and it is titled Bricka Murders, A New Push to Solve Cincinnati's Infamous Cold Case. Oh, wow. So a cold case. It's considered the most notorious cold case in Cincinnati. A husband, wife, and their four-year-old little girl were murdered in their West Side home 54 years ago. Gerald Jerry Bricka, 26, his wife Linda, 23, and their daughter Debbie, 4, were found slain inside their home September 27, 1966. It still haunts neighbors more than a half century later. The street was all lit up, police cars and flashing lights everywhere, Julie Russ said. It was close. That doesn't happen in our neighborhood, you know? Rest was a young girl at the time of the slaying, just 12 years old. Judith Hemmer was newly married and friendly with her beautiful neighbor, who seemed to have it all. Hemmer recalls conversations she had with Linda Bricka on her front porch. She was outgoing and very confident. She had a beautiful smile, pretty eyes, Hemmer recalled. But that night in 1966, everything changed. The Cincinnati Strangler was on the loose. Four women had been raped and murdered, and then the Brickas were found. Gary, Linda, and Debbie were all stabbed to death inside their home along Greenway Avenue in Bridgetown. You've got a beautiful wife, a workaholic husband, and an adorable child in a nice neighborhood, said J.T. Townsend, who admits he obsessed is obsessed with what happened that night. He's a Cincinnati historian and author who spent decades piecing together every detail of the Bricka murders and writes about the terror in his book, Summer's Almost Gone. I'm glad they explained why he was obsessed because that came off very murdery. <laughs> Townsend walked WLWT Sheree Pum. Yep, that's a last name. Paolo. 
sorry, Sheree, uh, through that horrific night. Jerry Bricka was last seen alive September 25th, 1966, as he placed garbage cans on the curb outside the family's home on 3381 Greenway Avenue. On September 27th, <clears throat> concerned neighbors checked on the Bricka family after noticing their newspapers began piling up in the driveway, that the garbage cans had not been taken in, and that the family dogs had not been let outside. Aww. I think there's a disturbance in the living room. Jerry goes down, is confronted. I think the adults are herded upstairs at gunpoint, and then the killing started. Jerry undoubtedly was killed first. Ten knife wounds, three to the throat. The throat is cut. Socks are stuffed in his mouth as a gag. A piece of tape is around his mouth. Linda is stabbed on the bed, all wounds to the front, six wounds. Debbie appeared to have been dragged away, arms completely out, legs completely out. That's horrifying. Oh, my God. A stuffed animal was just out of her reach, Townsend said. Oh. oh, that's so sad. Oh, my heart. We lived up in the suburbs. My mom wanted to get mace. People were getting guard dogs. We weren't even in the epicenter of the crime, really. It just wasn't supposed to happen here in Cincinnati. Even though it's been five decades, Townsend believes this case can still be solved. He has five top suspects. Two are still alive. Be the suspect alive or dead. We need to close this case. You can close it with a dead suspect. You can certainly close it with a live one. Mm-hmm. Townsend and his army of faithful Westside followers on his Facebook page, Bricka Unlocked, say they can they won't stop until the evidence is retested. That's where the count, county's top cop comes in. I remember this case because my grandfather was the sheriff, and it would be nice to close the loop on this. Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Ditter said, "Dieters is now pre- re- retesting every piece of evidence in the Bricka case." Unfortunately, the ancestry group used to match DNA did not find a match in the Bricka materials submitted, but Dieters says, said there's still hope. There's still some hairs that may be tested, and they're going to be tested very soon. If the county gets a DNA match that they think is from a suspect who has already died, Dieters said he's even willing to exhume a body. Like any unsolved crime on his watch, this one has become personal for Dieters. Sometimes you think you've pulled off the perfect thing or crime, but sometimes you just can't clean up good enough and we get them, he said. Until that happens, Townsend's fight for justice continues. People just want to know what happened. Isn't that why you keep reading the book? You keep watching the movie and the TV show? You want to know what happened and why we don't know, Townsend said. So the last name of the family, Bricka, it's B-R-I-C-C-A. And the Facebook page is Bricka Unlocked if anybody wants to look at it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's incredibly sad. It is. And I can completely understand why everybody in the neighborhood would be shocked and And terrified. Yeah. Like, I mean, nobody expects things like that to happen near them. Like, oh, that's just awful. Oh, those poor people. For real. Well, maybe I can pick one that's not as sad. <laughs> right? In this on a good note. Well, none of this is good because if you're a ghost, you're still dead. So, well, they're all pretty sad from what I saw because I clipped <laughs> through a few before I picked that one. Okay. Well, we'll end this with Jennifer. She says, this is my hometown, and I tell this story to all my new buds who love the spooky oogie. Yes. So, we'll do this one. (laughs) 
I like spooky ooky. You like spooky ooky. I love spooky ooky. <laughs> oh no, and the title is Spider House Tragedy. <laughs> oh good. Let's oh good. Yeah. Nestled on a quiet lane in old Grand Lake City sits a intricately crafted home of Warren C. and Mary O'Brien Gregg, known today as the Spider House, a testament to a remarkable woods craft wood craftsman (laughs) wood craftsman and his tormented wife oh no oh no she's gotta be tormented huh yep warren what to his friends (laughs) okay what a nickname what (laughs) it's not spelled like that but it just sounds like to me like what what dude what do you want he was a dreamer (laughs) And in the 1870s, he left his first wife and young son in Wisconsin and headed for the Colorado Territory, seeking a fortune in the mines of Gilpin County. (sighs) What a dick. A big one. I already don't like him. Upon returning to Wisconsin, his first wife died of a fever, leaving Warren a widower to a small son. Holding tight to his dreams of the West, Warren eventually ended up in his native Indiana, where he met and married 20-year-old Mary O'Brien in 1884. By 1888, Warren packed his new family into a prairie shooter. Okay. I need to not be speaking English apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I'm short circuiting now, too. Okay. A schooner and headed west. Like so many other pioneer women before her, Mary bore a child along the trail, a second son whose short life would send Mary down a dark and tortured path. Oh, that's sad. I wouldn't have survived the Oregon Trail either. Same. Dysentery. <laughs> it's funny because her husband's name is Terry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I constantly be dysentery. Uh, the family arrived in Middle Park late in the summer of 1888, built a small homestead on the eastern slope of Stillwater drainage, and the newborn died suddenly thereafter. Oh, so sad. Though the years would bring more children, Mary would never quite recover from the loss of her second son. They continued to scratch. Oh, that was just a weird way of saying it. Continue to scratch out a living in this harsh and isolated land where winters were long and supplies were meager. Warren spent much of his time searching for game and exploring this new country. The Greggs moved numerous times, finally purchasing a plot of land from old Judge Westcott on the west side of the lake. Warren built his family a a nice house with intricate details and spider-like webs of wooden elements. Hence the spider house. Despite the warmth and comfort of this new home and the close proximity of neighbors, Mary's depression deepened. Then on Sunny's... Oh, this is going to get bad. Then on a sunny Sunday in 1904, while Warren was working in his wood shop and the oldest son Lloyd was having Sunday dinner at Judge Westcott's, Mary took a gun to her four remaining children and then turned the weapon on herself. The children died instantly while Mary lingered on for four days. The five victims of this tragedy, one girl and three boys, and Mary herself are buried together in one grave in the Grand Lake Cemetery. Warren lived in the Spider House for another 29 years with his son Lloyd. He continued continued building homes and stone fireplaces. He succumbed to heart failure in 1933. 
Mary O'Brien Gregg finally found peace in the quiet grace of the little town cemetery surrounded by her children. Almost a century later, as the tall pines whisper their mournful winter song, the spider house still sits nestled on that quiet little lane. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Big Jesus Christ. I was here for the spooky, not the tragic. Jesus, that was so much murder. That was a lot of murder. Yikes. Well, that ended a lot more dark than I thought it would. (laughs) I was expecting like murder light. Yeah. Yeah. Murder light. A sprinkle of murder as a treat. (laughs) You just get a little bit. A little guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord have mercy. Well, thank you guys. Yes, it's been fun. All these wonderful stories of death, 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 death. Everybody. I've been listening to nonstop 2000s rap music all day, so it's probably a lot of little John in my head. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you guys. And next month's October, so let's get even spookier up on this well, ghost stories. Yes. Scary, scary ghost stories. We need we need them all. Yes. All I'll I will wear a costume. Y'all send scary stories. Yes. Ooh, we could we could actually make the this one public. That'd be like a Halloween treat or something. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah, it could be a historical AF trick or treat. <gasps> yeah, since you know you can't leave your house. Yeah. <laughs> More details to come. <laughs> da, 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 da. Da. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>